Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. McMaster's downtown residents still plagued by water quality problems. Goodbye Bill 124, the Ticats free agency plan, homes on parking lots, sex stats, and gray divorce. Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The water quality issue at McMaster's downtown residence at 10 Bay Street still an issue. Even after tenants all moved out of the building and workers tried to fix the problem. And, and, you know, this has been going on for several weeks now. Tenants speaking out about numerous issues. Water concerns being at the top of the list since they moved in last fall while construction was ongoing. So there was a statement released from McMaster University. It said the most recent round of testing from our water consultants has come back with five out of 58 samples continuing to show the presence of total coliform bacteria all contained on floors 10 to 16. Floors 1 to 9 and 17 to 28 have come back clear. This has been a difficult few weeks, few months for tenants of that building. One of which is our next guest, Connor Galloway, is co-chair of the 10 Bay Tenant Working Solidarity Group and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Connor, welcome to the show. Hi, Rick. Thank you for having me on today. So you've had water problems now for several weeks. You were out for a week as the issue was looked at. Um, But these issues, at least on floors 10 to 16, continue to persist. What's your reaction to what was found while this work was being done? Yeah, so Rick, uh, we've been having these water issues since uh, I think about uh, mid-November. They've tried uh, multiple different methods of trying to uh, fix the issue. As you know, yesterday, uh, last week, we were all moved out to a hotel so that they could chlorinate the whole building. So it's just really disappointing to hear uh, afterwards that there were still some uh, test samples of the coliform bacteria within the water. Um, it's just it's been very stressful to uh, not know if you know we have clean drinking water, if the showers and things are still safe, um, especially as uh, school year is really kicking up for the uh, theses and things like. For those still on floors 10 to 16, are they still out of the building or are they all back? And, and are they being offered perhaps another week or, or whatever it takes at a hotel or, or somewhere else? Yeah, so uh, I think those on 10 to 16 are still in the building. Uh, the building does offer uh, water jugs and they, I think they've started to offer bottled water as well for your rooms. Um, I know so a lot of people have been taking the big water jugs back to their room. Uh, just for use uh, throughout the week. So you just you, you got to make do, I guess, with what you have, right? What's the mood like in the building? Um, it's definitely uh, demoralized a little bit. Uh, I think a lot of us thought that after moving out of the uh, hotel, coming back, that uh, particularly the water issue, which is of, for, of the most immediate concern, would be solved. So I think after seeing this, it's it's just demoralizing, for sure. Has it also led to, and the word that comes to mind is camaraderie. I mean, you, you're all in the same kind of boat. I know some floors are, are not as affected as others. Has it led to a, a sort of togetherness? Yeah, we do have a really strong, uh, tight-knit community here with the Tenant Solidarity Working Group. Uh, we started organizing uh, sometime in October uh, because the conditions in sight of the building was just really poorly done. Uh, it wasn't a finished building when they moved us in. So it did bring us a lot of us together uh, in order to try to negotiate with McMaster and say, hey, uh, you know, this is just not acceptable. And what are you going to do about it? 
Uh, Mac is giving residents free rent this month. Is that the least they can do? Yeah, uh, Mac has definitely been generous uh, with the rent reduction in February, and they have some uh, have had rent reductions in previous months. I definitely think that uh, it should have been expected, uh, especially considering that the building itself uh, just wasn't completed uh, when the students did move in. And it's hard to not see that that is not part of the reason that the water is unsafe, uh, that we're having issues with construction, waking people up, uh, issues with management and the like. It does feel like it's all kind of confounded within them rushing this building. Uh, you have a virtual hearing, uh, hearing a virtual meeting with uh, the school later on today, five o'clock this afternoon, to answer questions and concerns. What are you hoping to hear? Um, I'm hoping to hear a bit more of a concrete plan on when it will be completely confirmed that the uh, bacteria coliform is eradicated in the uh, in the water system, and you know what their plan is uh, to do that. Do you have any specific questions you're going to ask at this meeting? Yeah, I guess uh, specifically if more testing has been done, um, what the resulting what the results of that testing has been. Uh, they've been a little bit sporadic in letting us know what the results and what their information is. So it's kind of been we've been waiting at the whims of what they said. So I definitely have questions around uh, what tests and uh, what kind of actions they'll have. Connor, what are the chances you expect to hear later on today that Mac is? Close to solving the issue. Um, I'm certainly pessimistic. I, I've been hopeful before, so and uh, certainly let down. So, I mean, I think we're all on the same team here, and you know, I'd like to see Mac fix these uh, problems. So, I, I, I am hopeful. How has it affected your schoolwork and the schoolwork of others in the building? Yeah, definitely been very stressful. Stressful for school. Just just having that extra worry and. Uh, difficulties of accessing water, like going out to the hall and things of the like, I've definitely avoided doing my work here in the building, uh, as well as during the weekdays. I mean, it's construction all day, <laughs> every day. So it's just very loud and distracting. It's difficult to do class and things like here. Is that construction nearing an end? Have you been told? Um, I don't believe it'll be done uh, throughout the year. I mean, they're doing construction uh, up above but it's definitely still audible from my room. Wow. What floor do you live on? Uh, I'm on the ninth floor. Wow. Okay, so your water is okay at this point. Yes, uh, apparently from the system, but I still drink from the drugs uh, until I get some more confirmation and answers. Good call on that. Connor, appreciate the time this morning. Good luck. Thank you, Rick. Take care. Connor Galloway is the co-chair of the 10 Bay Tenant Working Solidarity Group. Uh, that was established under QP 3906. Uh, Mac, for its part, not only continuing with the testing and, and committed to fixing the issues, again, offering free rent for February, supplying bottled water and jugs of water, and is committed to communicating via email. Uh, tough situation, especially as you're going to school and trying to study and learn things and, uh, you know, excel in whatever courses you have. That's, that's a lot to uh, digest. Uh, pardon the pun. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. That brings us into the workplace in regards to the provincial government, because it says it is not going to appeal to the Supreme Court to weigh in on its wage cap law after a court once again found it unconstitutional. Instead, the Ford government says it will repeal Bill 124 in the coming weeks. 
Bill 124 was just one part of Ford's systematic suppression of workers' rights and his undermining of the public services we rely on. That is uh, J.P. Hornick, the Ontario Public Service Employees Union president. Uh, The law, if you recall, capped salary increases of public sector workers like nurses, like teachers, to 1% a year for three years. Karen Littlewood is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Karen, good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm pretty good. I, you know, it's getting light out. It's a beautiful day. I'm, I'm great. Thank you. Well, and you're probably feeling good about the, uh, the future repealing of this bill. And, and let me ask you this. Is, is the repealing of Bill 124, is it a sigh of relief or were you feeling another emotion when you heard what the court was ruling and what, and what the province plans to do with it? You know, you often hear about the the slogan that the Ford Conservatives talk about. Uh, I believe it's like getting it done. And I, maybe they should change it to doing the right thing because they seem to make a number of mistakes, get caught, push back, push back, legal challenges. And in the end, they do the right thing, which, OK, that's great. But what's happened in the meantime is a lot of workers have really been negatively impacted. So I feel relief. Um, but I'm also upset that these kind of things continue to happen in Ontario. Well, and you make a good point, and I've referenced this on, on the show many a time, is, yeah, it's great that they reverse course on on a number of things. The Green Belt would probably be, you know, the most glaring example. Bill 124 certainly falls into that category. But why not get it right the first time? I mean, we're talking about millions of people being impacted. Yeah, well, you know, in order to get it right the first time, I think they'd need to be consulting with stakeholders. And they do consult with stakeholders. They're usually called developers, but they're not talking to the actual workers. Um, that's, that's the big issue here is we have many good solutions to address issues throughout public services within education, but we're not consulted. Um, and we wait for the legislation that will come. We fight the legislation. We win the fight. It's This is such a, a cycle and it needs to stop. This is going to cost the government $8 billion. What does that mean for your members? Is this retroactive pay? Is it a lump sum coming? How does this work? Yeah, so this is this is the public service. These are the people, these are your neighbors, they're your friends, they're your your cousins. These are people who go to work every day and try and do the best by the province. And yes, their wages were capped at 1% for three years. Incredibly challenging given that inflation was so high during that time period. For our lowest paid members in OSSTF, they're just barely above minimum wage. So it's going to give them some relief. But the reality is many of them still have to have two or three jobs in order to get by. So will those affected members, and it's everyone in, in, in the union, whether it's OSSTF or uh, OPSU, whatever the case is, will it be a retroactive pay in terms of a lump sum payment or, or a series of uh, payments uh, over a year, whatever the case is? Have you been told? Yeah. Yeah, so our pathway is a little bit different because as part of voluntary binding interest arbitration in order to have peace and stability in the classrooms in Ontario, but also we took advantage of Ford when they were suffering through their Greenbelt scandal, they agreed to give us a 124 remedy. And we just had the announcement last Friday that the amount for the third year would be 2.75%. That will give some relief to people. And yes, it will be paid out. They have uh, 120 days, less than that right now, 
in order to get the money to OSSTF members in the school board sector. Karen Littlewood is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Karen is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. We're talking about Bill 124 being repealed in the coming weeks after the government decided not to appeal a court decision to the Supreme Court that uh, uh, was dealing with this wage cap law. A A lot of people at the news conference yesterday were talking about the this whole scenario reinvigorating the labor movement. How true is that? Yeah, well, labor labor has has to come together. When you have a government that has the type of patterns of behavior, you know, your past behavior will indicate future actions. You do have to come together. And if you wait until you need a friend to find one, it's too late. We have many friends in the labor movement in Ontario. Ontario has a long history of strong labor action. We're also part of the Canadian Labor Congress, strong actions across the country. We have to pull together. And I, I think what we have to do is put our on 2026 and what kind of government we want going forward. With this current government, is the relationship repairable or is it beyond repair? Can you repair something that doesn't really exist? Like, let's get together and let's talk. Let's talk about how we can address... In the news last week, there were so many sad stories about violence in the classroom in Hamilton schools, and that's not unique to Hamilton, but it's really scary that it's come to this. We want to make sure that everybody is safe in Ontario schools, but we can work together. I wrote a letter to the government, uh, it's almost two years ago now, saying, let's get together. Let's have some kind of task force to see what we can do to address violence in the classroom. And I get, thank you, we're already doing enough. That's the response. Interesting stuff. Karen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Enjoy the day. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Rick. Have a great day. Karen Littlewood is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. This is, you know, to say it's egg on the face of the Ford government might be an understatement. I mean, this was an initiative that, as I said, capped a wage increase for public sector workers. Think of those nurses who were burnt out in hospitals. Those teachers, uh, especially in the early days of the pandemic, was not fun in offering remote teaching and and even as the pandemic kind of uh, carried on, you know, remote slash hybrid, it was difficult. And to get their wage increase capped at 1% a year over three years for all, it was a slap in the face. And now all these years later, uh, a court, now two courts have found that this is unconstitutional and the bill is going to be repealed. We'll certainly give this some more discussion in the weeks to come because it's a, it's a massive ripple effect. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big day in the Canadian Football League. Fans from coast to coast eagerly anticipating what is going to happen when CFL free agency officially opens at noon. Will this guy still be in Hamilton? Check it at eight. From the Hamilton 53, Crum throws, and it is picked off Simone Lawrence. That ball was up in the air for a while, looked like a couple of players had cracks at it, but the second interception of the game, the second of the season for the Tiger Cats, and it's Simone. RJ Brown had the call on the Ticats Audio Network in 900 CHML. Simone Lawrence, receiver Tim White. Could both be out the door? Is this a new era on the horizon in the hammer? John Hodge is a reporter with Three Down Nation and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. John, good morning. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Rick. Great article online, 3downnation.com, the top 50 CFL free agents. And I think, if my math was correct, I counted about 10 Ticats 
on that list. There's a lot of talent that could potentially walk out the door today. There is. And, you know, when I think about the Ticats, I think about a team in a little bit of a, a transition. I mean, this is the only team with a new GM and a new head coach this year. And I appreciate that Scott Milanovic and Ed Irby were, were in the building last year. But this is also a team that hosted two of the last three Grey Cups, right? And, and when you're hosting a Grey Cup, it's pretty normal for teams to want to put together a, a very veteran-laden roster, right? Put together a lot of experience with the hope of of potentially being in that game. Now, obviously, the Ticats were successful in, in qualifying for the game in 2021, and they fell well short in, in 2023. So, you know, between the the new blood at the helm, so to speak, and between, you know, maybe having, you know, as, as much as it's... Uh, as much as it's it's desirable to host a great cup, it can be a bit of a burden with the extra pressure that's put on. With that lifted, right, it makes sense for this team to to kind of turn over a new leaf and and try to get a little bit younger. Try to uh, try try to maybe move out some of these pieces that that uh, are maybe maybe a little bit past their best before date. So in the case of Simone Lawrence, here's an all-star legendary player with the Tiger Cats, the the heart and soul of the defense, maybe even of the team. Uh, he's not 24 anymore, but he did have a resurgent campaign and was injury-free last year. Is your best guess that he's staying or leaving? That's a great question, Rick, and I I, I don't have a 100% confident answer either way. I, I will say the, the Ticats traded earlier this offseason for Canadian linebacker Jordan Williams. He's a player who Ed Hervey traded up to draft back when he was the general manager of the BC Lions in 2020. And, uh, you know, Jordan Williams is a very good player. He's a starter, and, and again, he's Canadian. I mean, the, the, the Ticats have traditionally started – uh, Canadian D tackle the last few years, uh, last many many years with with Ted Laurent there. I believe that they are looking to start at least one, possibly two Canadians in the linebacking core. If the answer is two Canadians in the linebacking core, that might be it for Simone Lawrence right there. Um, so I think it depends on maybe who they're able to bring in at weak side linebacker. I know they had very serious conversations uh, with a few pending free agent Canadian linebackers, but. Some of those guys have 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 not hit the open market. Like you, you had, uh, for instance, Jack Kassar, former second round pick of the Toronto Argonauts. He ended up back with the Argos. You had Micah Tights, who I believe the Ticats had conversation with. Uh, he was former starting weak side linebacker with the Saskatchewan Roughriders. He's going to Calgary today. So, you know, if if they're not able to find that Canadian, I think that raises the chance of of Simihov being back. But uh, again, I, I I don't think the uh, I don't think the odds are great, but I don't think the odds are zero either. Last one for you. we got about a minute and probably not a lot of time to talk about Tim White, but uh, he's apparently asking for big bucks. Is he going to get it in Steeltown? I'd be shocked if he gets it anywhere, to be honest, Rick. I mean, Dalton Schoen in his camp, you know, the, the original uh, goal was $300,000. And, you know, because Kenny Lawler makes two eighty five, Eugene Lewis makes three twenty. Those are the only two guys that I'm aware of who are over two fifty. And Dalton Schoen got to the communication window, and, and that offer for 300 never came. And that's why he's back in Winnipeg to the tune of about $230,000. And to me, if, if that's what Dalton Schoen is worth, that's what, that's what Tim White's worth. That's no disrespect to Tim White. He's a fantastic receiver, led the league in receiving yards and, and receiving touchdowns this past, uh, this past season. Incredible work. But, you know, I, I don't think he's worth more than, than Dalton Schoen. So 
to me, this is this is Tim White needing to come down off of his price a little bit. To me, that's why he's not signed yet, uh, either back in Hamilton or agreed to terms elsewhere. Uh, so that's an interesting one to see if he's if he's going to come down off that three hundred thousand dollars number because you know if he gets it, God bless him. Like, mm-hmm. Good for him, he gets it. But I, I I'm I'll put it this way: I'm skeptical that he will get to that number. It's going to be a lot of fun, but it could also be a, a very emotional day for many fans, not only in Hamilton, but across the country who are tied and connected with uh, some of the superstars of their teams. John, thanks for the time today, and uh, enjoy CFL Free Agency. Appreciate it, Rick. Anytime. It all starts at noon. You can check out John's article on 3downnation.com. 2024 market open, 3 Down Nation's top 50 CFL free agents. Tim White, number one on that list. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk a little housing and parking. Because as Canada wrestles with trying to solve our housing crisis, we just need a lot more homes built in this country. Some people, and and there's a contingent here in Hamilton, suggest we start building homes on parking lots. And there are many options to look at. A 2021 report by the Canadian Energy Systems Analysis Research says there are roughly 23 million cars, trucks, and SUVs in this country. And we have upwards of 97 million parking spots. That's 4.2 parking spots for every vehicle in Canada. So... Why not build homes on those lots? Or why not build future homes without as many parking spots? Mike Richardson is the technical lead at Housing Now TO and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mike, good morning. How are you? It's Mark. Good morning, Rick. Oh, sorry, Mark. Let's get to the question. Why not build homes on those lots or reduce the number of parking spaces? I mean, the good news is that in many cases, we are already building homes on those lots. I know that in Hamilton... Uh, I believe that a couple of sites, one at uh, Bay and Cannon, has been turned into 54 units of affordable housing. And the folks at Kiwanis Homes have also done about 60 apartments uh, on a parking lot at the Jack McDonald Apartments. Um, So the the people who are really trying to solve the affordable housing crisis problem in particular, um, they are already building on parking lots in Hamilton. We just need to do more of it and do it faster. We have minimum parking regulations in this country, MPRs, and that basically forces developers to include a certain number of parking spaces per development, which obviously costs money. Can we eliminate MPRs? Uh, Certainly. I mean, a lot of cities in Canada already have. Toronto eliminated theirs in 2021. Uh, Edmonton has eliminated theirs. Uh, I'll give you a, a really good example. So, you know, our, our numbers are Toronto numbers. So your your Hamilton mileage may vary hmm. on some of our numbers. Um, but the city of Toronto uh, had a, a parking lot site, a former strip mall uh, on Coxwell Avenue, right on a streetcar line. So next to higher order transit, there was a um, seniors affordable housing co-op in 2017 that was looking to build 32 seniors affordable housing co-op apartments. And at that time, under the city's parking minimums, uh, the city was telling this this organization they would have to build 42 underground parking spaces, one for every unit, plus a number of visitors spaces. So on this small site, this small affordable housing seniors uh, building, they're going to need to build 42 underground parking spaces, which at that time was going to be about $3.5 million before they created a single unit of affordable housing. So if you're an affordable housing provider, 
and you have to spend three, three and a half million dollars on parking before you create a single affordable housing unit, your project just doesn't go ahead. Um, so that's why we've been impressed by seeing uh, what what has happened already in Hamilton on some of the city-owned parking lot sites. We're encouraging uh, the province and Metrolink and Infrastructure Ontario to look at some of the GO station parking lots, um, which are already starting to do uh, in, in the city of Toronto and in Mississauga. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, if you want affordable housing, uh, you're going to really need to make a choice between parking or people uh, because empty car storage is just incredibly expensive to build now in Canada. Mark Richardson is the technical lead at Housing Now TO. We're talking about parking lots, parking spaces, and the uh, inability in some cases to build homes because we have too many of these parking spaces. And a lot of people are thinking, well, why not take some of these lots and build some homes on them? And, and you pointed to, you know, the three and a half million dollar figure in terms of creating those parking spaces at that one location in Toronto. In many cases, Mark, a lot of those spaces are going to be rented out to other people. Uh, not not in Toronto. In, in many cases where you're limited, depending on your uh, the way your, your building is organized as to whether you can rent underground parking spaces out to other people. Uh, and also the market for it is relatively flat. If you talk to any... Uh, even private sector developer in downtown Toronto now, they're having they were having to build more parking than there were people looking to buy parking spaces. So even if you look at it purely from a, a pure market point of view, uh, you know, owning a vehicle is expensive. Maintaining and insuring a vehicle is is expensive. And if on top of that you're being asked in Toronto's case to pay eighty to a hundred thousand dollars in a condo building for an underground parking space, there's probably a you know, you can you can buy a lot of Uber rides or 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 transit fares with eighty or a hundred thousand dollars. So people are getting rid of their second vehicle, getting rid of their primary vehicle, and choosing other methods of transportation. Digging a great big hole in the ground to put a, a car in for the next fifty years may not make sense if the the level of vehicle ownership is not going to be the same as it was in the nineteen seventies when a lot of these rules were created. Would rezoning be a big issue? Uh, in most cases, this isn't a rezoning issue. This is you can you can carve off the parking minimum from the overall zoning of the neighborhood. Um, so you know the, the building we were talking about before was a a, a seven eight story building. Um, it wasn't a very large building. It was only like I said thirty something affordable housing units for seniors. Um, but it will it will kill a project if you tell them they need to dig down in underground and create a lot of underground parking spaces for the kind of building where there's just no demand for it. Hmm. Uh, so we, you know, we're encouraging uh, the, the city of Hamilton. I know we've talked with Jason Thorne, who is your chief planner. Uh, we've talked with Mayor Horvath uh, in the past when she was at, uh, at Queens Park. Uh, and uh, one of your local MPs, Chad Miller, has, has spoken to us, particularly about stuff along your new LRT lines, around your GO stations. Uh, are there better uses of those parking spaces to, to deliver affordable rental housing through partners like the Kiwanis Homes folks. We will definitely follow up with the City of Hamilton, get their input on uh, the Go Forward plan. Mark, thanks for bringing this to our attention. Enjoy the day. Have a good day, Rick. Thanks. You too. Mark Richardson is the technical lead with Housing Now TO. 40% of Canada's parking spaces are residential. 26% are commercial and institutional. So your shopping malls or uh, factories uh, the rest are on-road spaces, so on route, you know those those uh, spark, uh, parking lots, uh, perhaps uh, uh, go train or go bus parking lots. 
A lot of parking spots in this country. 4.2 parking spots for every vehicle in Canada. That's a lot. That's a lot of money we can be putting towards housing as opposed to building parking lots. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new book out. It's written by a McMaster University professor, and it's offering a glimpse of what is happening between the sheets and in the bedrooms and the campground, the hotel room, you name it, across the country. Yeah, we're talking about S-E-X. Tina Fentner is a professor and chair in the Department of Sociology at McMaster University, and her new book is called Sex in Canada, The Who, Why, When, and How of Getting Down Up North. Tina, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Why did you find the desire to write this book? Well, uh, I teach a class on sociology and sexualities, and uh, I was getting a little tired of using American data. I thought, you know, we should have these data in Canada. And then I was like, wait a minute, I'm a professor. I can do this research. And so I did. <laughs> so where did you look for these uh, this da- data, th- these stats? This is a representative sample of the entire Canadian adult population. So is this from StatsCan? No, this is a, an original survey that I administered myself with the help of um, uh, Environics Canada, a polling firm. So wow. this is an online survey that we administered original data. So would you describe Canada as a sexually active nation? Um, yeah, absolutely. We um, we asked all adults and we found out that um, 70% of people had had sex in the past year. Now, that might be a little bit lower than you expect, but you have to imagine, oh, is every year a year that you have sex, right? Maybe you're um, not feeling well. Maybe you have some, you know, a breakup or whatever. But so about 70% of our respondents said yes. Do you think people were 100% honest? Oh, that's a really good question. And it's one that we often get when we're talking about sexuality and sexual behavior data, because we always imagine that people are feeling shame and uh, maybe uh, fudging the numbers a little bit. And there's really, you know, no way to be 100% sure that people are being honest. But we do, you know, we do have um, other data to compare it with. We do, have, you know, take every precaution to make sure people can, uh, you know, are anonymous. They're not identified. Um, it's online, so people can do it in the privacy of their own spaces. And so, um, these are the best. These are the best data that we have. McMaster University professor Tina Fentner is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Her new book out, Sex in Canada: The Who, Why, When, and How of Getting Down Up North, and it runs the gamut in terms of sexual orientation, demographics. This is, how long did it take to research all this? Yeah, well, we did the survey in um, 2018. And so it's taken um, just over five years to get this book completed. Wow. What does it say? And I I got the book yesterday. You dropped it off, which I, I was very appreciative of. And I was leafing through it, looking at the bar graphs, checking out the stats. What does it say that I fast forwarded already to chapter two? How much sex are we having? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that we like to imagine that we kind of are in charge of our sex life, but really where we land in our life course, you know, how where we are in terms of our relationship status, it matters to how much sex that we're having. And so one of the things that I really think is really interesting is that if you're, you know, watching TV or thinking about the way that we portray who's having the most sex, you might come away with the idea that um, young single people have the most sex. 
but this isn't the case. Um, you know, we asked single people about 35% of them had had sex in this month. And, um, but married people were much more likely to have sex this month. Uh, 50, 56% of them said that they had. And when you think about it, um, it makes a lot of sense, right? It's much easier to find a sexual partner if they live in the same house with you. And that convenience really makes all the difference to how much sex you're having. Absolutely. Did anything surprise you? You're, you're studying the, the, the numbers that are coming in. You thought, wow, I did not expect to, to see that. Yeah, I think one of the things that surprised me was the data that was on um, solo sex, right? Uh, our data on masturbation. It's um, kind of a controversial topic in the classroom because the students think everybody is having so solo sex all the time. And, uh, you know, if you uh, if you span out a little bit and think about, well, do older people also um, masturbate as much as younger people? How, how much is happening? Um, so I thought it was a bit... Um, interesting, at least, to find out that just over half of Canadian adults say that they um, masturbated in the past month, about 55%. But when you look at the age breakdown, I think it's kind of surprising because we have very similar proportions for not just the 18 to 29 group, but also people in their 30s and 40s. All of them, about 60 to 65% of them said that they masturbated in the past month. And it's really only the older groups that had a little bit lower um, proportion than that. So um, 50 people in their 50s, about just over half of them, people in their 60s, about 40% of them, and even people who are 70 or older, about 38% of them said that they'd masturbated in the last month. Tina Fentner is a McMaster University professor. We have another minute with the author of Sex in Canada, the who, why, when, and how of getting down up north. Uh, last one for you, the social organization of sexuality in that chapter in the book. What does that get into? Yeah, that looks at all the ways that our social location might influence or shape the way that we make sexual choices. So everything from the, the, the region of Canada that you grow up in, um, whether you get a job right out of high school or go on to post-secondary education, um, your gender, your sexual orientation, these things all matter to not just how much sex you have, but the kind of sex that you're having. It's an interesting read. I haven't gotten through all of it, but uh, from what I've read thus far, very intriguing. Tina, thanks for sharing your uh, insight and analysis on sex in Canada. Thank you so much. Tina Fentner, professor and chair in the Department of Sociology at McMaster University. Again, the book is called Sex in Canada, The Who, Why, When, and How of Getting Down Up North. Check it out in your favorite bookstore online or uh, in the physical um, book place. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk about gray divorce. It's becoming more and more common, it appears, in this country. The average age for divorce steadily rising over the years. And a part of that is because people are getting married at a later age. In 2020, according to StatsCan, in 2020, the average age of divorce was 48 years. But many family lawyers are seeing more seniors, more people 65 plus saying, that's it, I've had enough. It's over. Russell Alexander is the founder of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Russell, welcome back to the show. How are you? Hello, Rick. Good to be with you today. Are you also seeing a rise in the, the gray divorce phenomenon? 
We are seeing a bit of a spike. This was um, common. We would see this occasionally prior to the pandemic and um, usually happened with retiring couples. So one person traditionally would work, the other person would stay at home. And then when that person who was working would retire, they would get to enjoy their retirement together and spend the full day together. But then they realized they didn't like the, each other that much if they had to spend the full day together and they <laughs> ended up getting divorced. Jeez. So this is, you know, spending some time with their spouse was good, but all the time was too much. So we saw that prior to the pandemic, the pandemic kind of changed that a little bit. Now we're seeing it starting to come back. So for those who are, let's just stick with the 65 plus crowd, what kind of challenges do they face when they do divorce? And, and I'm assuming it's a little bit different than someone early on in their marriage. Right. It depends on the reason for divorce. Infidelity is always a big one, regardless of the age. But probably some of the biggest challenges uh, great divorce couples are experiencing are uh, retirement and changes to lifestyle. And with the increased longevity, people are realizing they want, don't want to spend the next 20 or 30 years with that particular spouse. So they need to consider their financial security. Um, if they start dividing their assets and their retirement income, their standard of living is going to change as well. Great segue into the financial picture, because by that age, in comparison to if you're married in your 30s or especially in your 20s, you're going to have a lot more accumulated wealth the older you get. Does that make for a stickier situation when older couples say, okay, we, we have to part ways? Well, it's good in the sense that they've acquired the wealth, but that just means you're going to be sharing a lot more of your property. Hmm. And you've spent your career in, in probably 25, 30 years assembly, accumulating this wealth and the asset, you know, obviously the big assets are the home and the pension, and those are going to need to be divided. So it's going to affect your lifestyle. And we're seeing that lots of people can't retire. They have to return to the workforce if they have a support obligation to pay to their spouse, or if they have to take on a mortgage because they're now dividing their property later in life. For some boomers, they have generated a lot of that generational wealth, and that maybe in, in many cases they can afford to live in separate homes. Yep, that's true. And um, But it's certainly going to be a different lifestyle. And for some people, it's good to get a fresh start, right? If that's not the person that they love anymore or if they've decided they want to move on for whatever reason, there could be several reasons why they're getting divorced, um, it's time to make a fresh start and start a new path forward. We're talking about gray divorce in Canada with Russell Alexander, family lawyer and founder of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. And it appears that uh, people in their senior age, their golden age, are uh, more and more of them at least, are splitting from their, uh, from their spouse, from their partner. When it comes to, we're in tax season, when it comes to tax implications, are there many? There are significant tax implications. It depends on your assets and how you want to divide them. But if you're going to start paying support to your spouse, that's taxable income and deductible income. There is tax implications of liquidating capital assets. There could be capital gains taxes that you need to consider. And a lot of the couples who are going through the great divorce had already planned the retirement in their budget based on what their retirement income was. But now they're going to have two households to support because they're, they're they're separating. 
So that's twice the budget and try to maintain the same lifestyle can be difficult, especially with the couples who don't have a large asset base or a lot of capital that they can draw upon. Great information by Russell Alexander. Russell, thanks for the time today. Have a great day, Rick. Thank you. You, too. you can check out uh, more info online as well, russellalexander.com. It is, uh, it's an interesting topic, gray divorce. And uh, the stats show if you were married at one point and you got divorced and remarried again, the stats show the likelihood of another divorce is higher than those who have not divorced before. Hope I explained that right. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.